1: Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan, Chase Begg, NA member, FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with Location Telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless...
0: I'm Maya Shunker, host of the new podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, from Pushkin Industries. We have an amazing season lined up for you, where I talk with folks who've navigated remarkable changes in their lives. To help kick things off, I called up my good friend and fellow podcast host, Michael Lewis. We talk about the inspiration for my show, and you'll get a little sneak peek of what's to come this season. I am recording and Michael, before we start talking about the podcast, I did want to share. I went down memory lane a little bit around our friendship because we've been friends for like, I don't know, five, six years. So I went back into the Gmail chambers and I found something very fun from 2015. This is after uh, my husband, Jimmy, and I hung out with you at Dick Thaler's birthday party. Okay. So we spent like a few days together. So I sent you the following email. Dearest Michael. Jimmy, Lee, and I would like to sign up to be your friend. I'll work with your agent to complete the relevant paperwork. Best, Maya and Jimmy. So first of all, clearly I don't know how to play hard to get. But thankfully, you didn't really enjoy the chase because you wrote back right away. Dear Maya, your application has been reviewed by our committee. All boxes seem to be checked. We are pleased to inform you of your acceptance. Michael. (laughs)
2: Yeah, so that's I how it all began. I have a feeling we but we share these character traits. I have a feeling we both <laughs> assume that other people would want to be friends with us, and so we don't actually aren't very shy about it. When I met you, there was no you. You had no media ambition. You were an advisor to Obama. How did you even get interested in being a podcaster?
0: So during quarantine. I was feeling really overwhelmed by all the changes that were happening around me. Um, I think everybody was feeling really overwhelmed by the change happening around them. And um, I think I realized, because I'm a cognitive scientist, so I was thinking about this from the perspective of psychology, right? Which is like, how do we interact with this change thing that just happens in our lives, whether we like it or not? And, you know, maybe the specifics of what 2020 threw our way is unprecedented but our human ability to navigate change is not. And so maybe if we heard stories from people who have experienced extraordinary changes in their lives, we could learn something interesting, right? There's no manual out there on how to navigate big life changes, right? We don't know what that process is supposed to look like. There's no science textbook on this. Um, And so I was like, let's dig up the most fascinating change stories, changes of all kinds, right? And then let's see what we can learn. Let's let's see if we can change our own minds about change.
2: So you started with the subject rather than the, than the ambition? You didn't think, oh, I want to be a podcaster, unless we, what should I do it about?
0: Definitely not. Hmm. That's just not the directionality that works for my brain. I need to have a really fascinating thing to say that feels interesting to me. It can't be the reverse. Like, I really... Um, I, I love podcasts, so I love the audio medium. It's super immersive for me, way more immersive than TV. Um, so I'm a huge fan of podcasts, but I just never imagined myself having a show of my own.
2: What What were your favorite podcasts?
0: Well, I'm a big Bachelor fan, as you know. Yep. So I absolutely subscribe to all the main Bachelor fan podcasts. Yep. Um, I like interview shows. Um, I listen, of course, to like Lori's. Santos's Happiness Lab. Um, actually, let me just pull up my podcast feed right now and tell you what's on there. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got the classic ones, so like uh, the Daily. Got against the rules, but that seems shameless right now.
2: No, it doesn't. Revisionist
0: history. Still processing. Hidden brain. How? Oh, I love how I built this. I actually. Part of me when I was thinking about this podcast was like, oh, how I built this talks about these elaborate journeys of humans who have built incredible things. And I was like, I kind of want a version of like how I built this life. Um, And so that was part of the inspiration, which was people are going through all these changes and how do they maneuver and how do they find creative solutions along the way and how do they navigate?
2: Have you always been interested in change? This has kind of come up.
0: You know, I I study change, right? So I study how and why people change. I study how and why people make decisions, how they develop their attitudes and beliefs about the world. Um, But I never elevated change to an important concept until I was thinking about this podcast. It felt in 2020 like a really big deal to think about. Um, And I think against the backdrop of such a broken political society, it felt especially important to figure out um, how and why we change in, in potentially good ways um, right. because we are seeing so many fractures. But you, no, yeah.
2: your, your observation that, uh, th- that this is a moment to investigate the, the phenomenon because of COVID is a really good one. And it, it's, it, to me, it's interesting because you can see, what's ha- you can see now as, as we start to come out of it by fits and starts, but, but that a lot of people, they had to change. And it's hard for them all over again because they have to change, that they've got to, they've adapted to some new kind of way of going through the world, and and they feel a kind of hesitancy about going back to the old ways. So people have very different attitudes towards it. It's not just one thing for everybody. Um, that's
0: exactly right, and it's not one thing for everyone over the course of their lives, right? Right. I think that's one thing we're finding out is. You know, huge childhood trauma with change doesn't necessarily mean that you have an aversion to it later on. Right. And we see some of that unfold in some of the stories.
2: Right. So give me an example of that. Give me an example of someone whose attitude towards change has changed.
0: Yeah. So one person I interviewed was Tiffany Haddish. She's is a, an incredible comedian. She just won um, Best Comedy Album at the Grammys this year, making her the first Black woman to win this award since the early 80s when Whoopi Goldberg won it. Um, and she had a deeply traumatic childhood. When she was eight, her mom had a really terrible car accident uh, that left her with severe brain damage and made her extremely violent and very verbally abusive. And so... Tiffany's having to navigate this new world where this person that she loved most in the world is now actively tormenting her. And so it's it's a profound change in her life. Um, and so what's fascinating about Tiffany's story is that she recognized early on as a kid that she had this talent, and that was to make people laugh. But rather than treating it as this recreational hobby, right, the thing that she just did, you know, with her friends and whatnot— she repurposed it into a survival tool. And so she uses this over the course of her life. When she's a kid, she tries to make her mom laugh, even just for a moment to distract her from getting hit. Does it work? And it's working, yes. She goes to school, doesn't know how to read. She charms her classmates into letting her copy their homework by making them laugh and being the class clown. And so she's so traumatized by change early in her life, but then slowly realizes that, she's identified that she has this superpower along the way. Um, and so now there's an element of her that embraces change because she realizes that she's got this amazing weapon that she can use at every turn.
2: It's actually it's just a great way to get at people's lives. I mean, getting at your yeah. life. You, so you start your podcast, right, by telling everybody that you once were going to be a musician and that didn't work out because you had this horrible yeah. injury. But back then, you weren't... Were you thinking... Like about you weren't thinking about change at that age as a con, like as a concept, as an abstract concept. You just had to go about your life and do something different.
0: Yeah, I don't think any kid is like, oh, and now I'm confronting change. I mean, no. maybe the philosophers among us were doing that, but I certainly wasn't. I was like, this sucks. That's what I was thinking.
2: If I were, if I met the uh, the musician you. Way back yeah. when when you were a kid, and i was I was interviewing you, would you be recognizable to me you were you basically the same character, but just with a <laughs> violin in your hands?
0: Uh, I think I was really the same. So when we look back at like childhood videos, it's a, a little bit unnerving how similar i I was back then. I think some of the traits I preserved are like getting inc- incredibly excited about things.' Right. And very passionate about things. i I was telling my production team that I have had to do months of voice therapy over the past few years because my doctor diagnosed me as getting so excited when I talk, I forget to breathe. This is apparently a medical diagnosis, (laughs) but I've now had to retrain myself to remember to breathe. Um, So I think that like exuberance was certainly there when I was a kid, but I think I was maybe the one thing that I had in childhood that I have not retained is just an absolute singular focus on a goal. I mean, I was so dedicated. Like, when I think back to being 9, 10, 11, going into a room and practicing for five hours, I I just can't, my brain can't comprehend today having that kind of discipline. I I don't, I I lost it. I I stopped cultivating that skill.
2: If you could go back, learning what you've learned so far, or, you know, just taking what you've learned as a grown-up, including all your behavioral science stuff, if you had to go back and consult the young you after you get, you're told that you're never gonna play the violin again. Yeah. Is there anything you would have told the young you?
0: Yeah, I would have said, stop making long-term plans. Mm. I was an absolute, I still am. I'm a type A or whatever that means. Right. I was obsessed with plan making. I wanted to know what my life was gonna be in two years, in four years, in 10 years. That persisted through college and grad school, and at every point, I'm like, I just, I just need to know what comes next.
2: So that trait, and, yeah. that trait survived that trauma. It's it amazing. Did. It's amazing. I was like,
0: well, I lost this one, but like, surely I can control everything else. You know, you don't always, you don't learn the valuable lesson that your right. control is an illusion right. until I think you had a few more experiences with right. change.
2: You know, the next season of my podcast is about experts, and we're still figuring it out. But I, mm. there's a fair chance that there'll be a show about experts whose expertise is no longer of use or Mm -hmm. valued in any way. That they go from being, you know, prized or at least used to being completely pointless. What do we tell them? Now you're a budding expert on how to endure these sort of changes. What do you do?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, when you first brought up expertise, I was like, wow, that's super relevant in my life because I had this expertise I had been building for over 10 years. And then overnight, it became useless. Didn't matter at all that I had this dexterity and I could play all these pieces. I suddenly couldn't play the violin anymore. I think one thing I'm learning, actually, I had this really interesting interview with a young guy around my age. He's a cancer researcher. His name is Scott. He's a cancer researcher, but he's also a total health nut. So for like the last 10 years, he's been a vegan and he's been obsessively trying to optimize his lifespan. Okay. Intermittent fasting, high intensity interval training, you name it, he's done it. Okay. Pours turmeric on his food. Okay. Turmeric should not be poured on food. And I'm Indian. So turmeric is like one of my spices. That's not how you engage with turmeric. But anyway, he said that his worst nightmare was eventually becoming deeply ill. And last year in the middle of coronavirus, he gets a stage four cancer diagnosis that overnight leads him to have to amputate his right leg. He's had three or four surgeries since then, including removing vertebrae, having to do six rounds of chemotherapy, moving to MD Anderson for treatments. I mean, it's, it's a gut-wrenching story. And it's, it's, it's particularly gut-wrenching if that's against the backdrop of someone who spent his entire life trying to avoid this outcome, right? This guy's worst fear comes true. And what he was marveling about is the fact that today, the day that I was doing the interview, he more or less felt as happy as he had before the diagnosis. Really? Which was stunning to me.
2: That is stunning. Because
0: the happiness research does show that we are massively resilient in the face of adversity and setback. And then when really good things happen, we don't stay super happy for a long time at all. We immediately go back down to our original set points. So I was familiar with this research, but I always called bullshit on it. Yeah. I was like, and I told Scott this, I was like, I'm so familiar with this research, but I was always like, okay, I get all of you will respond in that way. But I assure <laughs> you that if I went right. through this experience, no way in hell I'm rebounding. Right. But to hear someone who could say to me, Maya, I was in your shoes. I'm exactly the same way. was really heartening. I w- and, and he said, if I had known the way that I would psychologically respond to this event, I wouldn't have spent so much time being so fearful of it in the first place. Huh. And I think there is a lesson there, for, there. Totally. for that episode you're about to do, which is like there are always unexpected, almost I would call like side effects that happen with change. Right. right? Things that we can't predict.
2: So having decided to do the podcast on the subject, yeah. are you finding the subject exhausting itself or do you think that it's kind of endless? How long can this go on for? Do you think how many permutations on this theme are there?
0: Yeah, I was definitely worried when I was conceiving the idea, like, is this just a season, you know, and my guests have proven me wrong, which I think is the best way to discover that there is more potential in something. It's not from doing your own research. It's not from having thoughts in the middle of the night. It's from uh, your interview subjects teaching you that there are all these facets of change that you wouldn't even predict. So my favorite kind of interview, Is when I go in thinking I know what a person's change story is, what what moment really changed them and the reaction they had. And they completely prove me wrong and show me that there was this other element of the change that was actually super formative. So this happened actually just on Friday. So I was interviewing Tommy Caldwell, who you might know, he is a he's an extremely skilled climber. He's considered one of the greatest big wall climbers in the world. And he scaled the Dawn Wall, which was deemed impossible uh, by just about everyone. And he did it with nine freaking fingers because he cut off one of his fingers during a wood shopping accident in his garage. Okay, so the 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 chain story I was most interested in had actually well preceded losing the finger. It happened when he was climbing in Kyrgyzstan and he was um, held hostage by these captors. And for six days was under their watch and was basically in a state of severe starvation, um, extremely cold temperatures. They thought they were going to die of hypothermia. And they can't converse with their captors, right? They speak to- two totally different languages and they're trying to plot an escape route. And in the end, uh, Tommy ends up pushing one of his captors off of a cliff um, so and and he I think he surprised himself because like he's a very kind of like soft, timid type, and he doesn't believe that one should kill. And so he he has to reckon with this event for so many years. And so I was probing into that part of the story, right? Which is like, it seemed like you proved to yourself, you know, where your actual limits were, right? Like you were able to endure this really intense experience. But the part that was so interesting to me that I didn't even think for a second about until I got to the interview. Is that the true motivation for him? The reason why he's been able to engage in incredible feats since Kyrgyzstan is actually because he's been chasing a mental state that he had only experienced once when he was in Kyrgyzstan. So it was about four days into his captivity where his body, I think, totally turned, it went from starving and apathetic to survival mode. And he said that he felt profound mental clarity and focus in that moment. He was in the ultimate flow state. Everything in the world was sharp and clear, and he knew exactly what he needed to do and how to do it. And he said it was so intoxicating that since that day, he's been chasing that high and has only reached it once. He even tried to starve himself once like on a climb to see if he could get back there. Okay, He reached it when he was scaling the Don Wall. And I remember telling him, Tommy, if an alien descended on this planet and knew that you had had this deeply harrowing experience and that you were then trying to recreate those yeah. circumstances in normal life because it was a change that you had actually desired it like was something you were striving for they would think you were insane but that's been the secret sauce to his experience and again i just love it when a guest teaches me you know about their story and makes me think about change in a totally different way
2: you know, it's funny because you're naturally a performer, right? You were going to be a performer. You're going to play the violin. Mm-hmm. You're going to be on a stage. You've now, got, you've now built a stage and you're on it again. Mm. Uh, and you're very naturally there. I, when I remember when I first met you, when you were giving that talk to those people at the Harvard Business School, you were so obviously a performer. You were so obviously just made to be in front of people talking. And uh, so now you're, now you're doing it. Um, how is being a podcaster changing you?
0: So I think it is making me a much better listener um, and I actually don't see myself as the performer. I, I, I try to approach every interview as though I'm giving the guest the stage. Right. Because that's the person whose story I'm trying to shine a light on. Right. And so my only role is to figure out the right questions to ask such that they reveal really fascinating things about themselves. I think it's actually just wonderful to be on this end of the mic, right? I've done tons of interviews, I've given tons of talks, performed so many times as a violinist. Right. And in many ways, I'm now an audience member. But right. I'm like a audience member who's almost like a, a music critic a little bit because like she's trying to probe yes. deep and try to figure out where some of the cracks are and and like and dig in there.
2: Right. So you're telling me that five years now, when you come over to my house for dinner, you're gonna be kind of quiet, recessive, shy.
0: Yeah, you won't even be able to get a word out of me.
2: No, you'll just be it's gonna there. It'll be a very painful dinner. Be, I'll be that you'll leave these <laughs> you'll leave awkward silences that I have to fill. That's so that's where you're going? No. I'm gonna, cu- I'm gonna cut the show off.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I I mean I think the other thing it's teaching me is like I don't I don't tend to get like any sort of stage fright or anxiety going into an interview or a conversation. I think maybe the reason for that is that when you're a little kid and you're forced to go on stage and play these deeply technical passages, when you're then told later in life you simply have to talk, like speak words, you're like, "Oh, wow, I'll sign up for that." <laughs> that seems a <laughs> hell of a lot easier. And I'm hoping that The fact that I'm not approaching the conversations with anxiety is putting my guests at peace, too, right? Letting them feel open and like we're really just having a conversation, which is what I'm hoping will be the vibe of the show. It's really meant to be not super formal. I can be quite irreverent at times. That is my actual personality, as you know, right? And so I'm hoping at least part of that that comes through.
2: All right. All right. I'm gonna let you go. Great to see you. And let's have dinner again soon.
0: Yeah. Sounds great. Okay. Bye. Bye. A Slight Change of Plans is created and executive produced by me, Maya Shunker. Big thanks to everyone at Pushkin Industries, including our producer Mo Board, associate producers David Jaw and Julia Goodman, executive producers Mia LaBelle and Justine Lang, senior editor Jen Guerra, and sound design and mix engineers Ben Tolliday and Jason Gambrell. Thanks also to Luis Guerra, who wrote our theme song, and Ginger Smith, who helped arrange the vocals. Incidental music from Epidemic Sound. And of course, a very special thanks to Jimmy Lee. You can follow A Slight Change of Plans on Instagram at Dr. Maya Shunker.
1: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant.
3: My name is Carlos Whitaker and I am honored to be the host of the Carlos Whitaker Podcast. What is this Carlos Whitaker Podcast? You may ask yourself. Well, it is a space where every single Thursday, myself and 300,000 or so of my online community friends gather together to have difficult conversations in grace-filled ways. Now, not every single week the conversation is difficult, but we are looking at the current cultural climate of not only America, but planet Earth. And we have a space where people that view the same issue from different perspectives can come together and listen to understand. It is a safe space where I like to say things like this. We don't stand on issues. We walk with people. So if you've been looking for a space where you can finally feel safe enough to engage in important conversations, let me invite you to join me and my community on the Carlos Whitaker podcast.